What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Founders Journal. I'm Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. Today, we are talking about product market fit. Product market fit is one of those things that every startup founder obsesses over, but it's always been this elusive thing that can't be measured or quantified. Until now. Raul Vora, the founder and CEO of Superhuman, which is the fastest email app ever, felt strongly that there had to be a better way to measure product market fit, a way to quantify it and use it as a proactive tool to dictate how you run your business and build your product. So in 2017, he wrote a seminal essay on a step-by-step process for testing, measuring, and achieving product market fit in your business an essay that has now become the most read article ever on the popular startup blog, First Round Review. On this episode, Raul breaks down his product market fit process so you can learn how to apply it to your own business. Let's hop into it. Okay, Raul, thank you for joining Founders Journal. Thank you for having me. So before we hop into the discussion, um, I'd love for you to just provide a quick breakdown on your business on Superhuman. There's, I'm sure, a lot of listeners who have heard of it. Some are even probably customers. But for those who haven't heard of your business, can you just give us a quick breakdown? Absolutely. Superhuman is the fastest email experience ever made. Our customers now get to their inbox about twice as fast as before. They're replying to their important emails eight to 13 hours sooner, and they say four hours or more every single week. Many of them actually see inbox zero for the first time in years. Love it. And uh, in terms of timeline, how long has the business been around? Gosh, I started working on the products I would say part-time towards the end of 2014 and really ramped full-time at the start of 2015. Awesome. And I don't think you intended for this to happen, but an article that you wrote in 2017 that I first saw on First Round Review, um, it's become kind of like at least a seminal article for me and I think for other entrepreneurs as they think about building product and thinking about product market fit. And... It was mind-blowing for me when I read it because I think I had a similar experience to the experience that you had that I want you to talk a bit about, which was that product market fit is this thing that is talked about by every entrepreneur. It is like the gold standard for for having a leading indicator for what will become a successful business. But then at the same time, there's no real definition for what product market fit is. And this article basically for me was the first uh, exposure to any sort of quantitative way or leading way to look at product market fit and embed it into how you build your business and understanding if your product is working or not working for the customers you care about. So can you just break down basically how you arrived at even writing this article or thinking about calculating product market fit as a metric? Like what drove you to doing this? You're right. We certainly did not intend the article to blow up in the way that it did. And it's now become the most shared article on first round review and the standard way that entrepreneurs define and measure products market fit. But it all started with asking the question, what is products market fit? And the glib answer is that it's the number one reason why startups succeed. And the lack of products market fit is also the number one reason why startups fail. But what really is it? And so I started looking around at 
uh, startup gurus to see what they say. Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, would say it's when you made something that people want. Sam Altman would say it's when users spontaneously tell other people to use your product. But it's Mark Andreessen who has perhaps the most vivid definition. He would say, you can always feel it when product market fit is not happening. Customers aren't quite getting value. Users aren't growing that fast. Word of mouth is not spreading. Press reviews are kind of blah. And the sales cycle takes too damn long. But you can always feel it when product market fit is happening. Customers are buying as fast as you can add servers. You're hiring sales and support as fast as you can. Reporters are calling you about your hot new thing. Investors are staking out your house and money is piling up in your checking account. And so that's a very vivid definition. And it was one that I was staring at through tears in the summer of 2017, because it seemed so subjective, so unactionable. What do you do if by that definition, you don't have product market fit? Indeed, I began to ask, can you measure product market fit? Because if you can, then maybe you can optimize it. Maybe you can systematically, even numerically, increase product market fit? And as it turns out, the answer is yes. You can define it in this way. You can measure product market fit and you can optimize it. Yeah. And one thing I want to call out before we talk about the, the methodology that you use and that you learned about for calculating product market fit is basically to say that my understanding of one of the reasons that you, know, you looked at uh, Mark Andreessen's definition through tiers is because the way that he had been defining it, meaning reporters calling because they've heard about your hot new thing, or you're starting to get Entrepreneur of the Year awards, uh, the way that you had been building your business, it wasn't built in a manner that necessarily lent itself to some of kind of like the anecdotal evidence that Mark Andreessen was calling out. But in some ways, that isn't necessarily the best barometer for whether you had product market fit or not. I think Mark's definition, and perhaps definition is the wrong word, it's sort of an observational awareness, you know it when you have it, is great, but it is a lagging indicator. And especially for our kind of business, where we basically have to rebuild the entirety of Gmail or the entirety of Outlook before we even start to make it better. And that takes years. I needed a way to know that we were actually making progress. Right. And yeah, and I think a big thing you talked about is like how much time was spent building kind of in private before this business really was talked about publicly. And by nature, you could be building the right thing, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily be seeing some of like these anecdotal observations like, you know, winning awards or, you know, sales flowing in or being hit up by reporters because the build time for the product was necessarily way longer. And so my what I'd love for you to break down now is what is the product market de uh, product product market fit definition that you came across that kind of set off the light bulb for you? And how do you now think about actually using that in practice? Absolutely. So it's probably helpful to contextualize the timeline and then we'll jump into the definition. Perfect. It was actually the summer of 2015 that we started, much like any other software company, to write code. And in the summer of 2016, a year later, we were still coding. And in the summer of 2017, we were still coding. 
And so I felt this incredible, intense pressure to launch, both from the team and also from within myself. After all, my last company, you may remember Reportive, had launched, scaled, been acquired in less time. And here we were two years in, and we still had not launched. But deep down inside, I knew that no matter how intensely I felt pressure, a launch would go very badly. So in other words, I did not believe we had products market fit. And although I knew it, I couldn't just say that to the team. It was obvious to me, but these are super ambitious, hyper-intelligent engineers. They'd poured their hearts and souls into the product. And so what I needed was a plan. And in the April of 2017, that's when I really started this search for the holy grail, for a way to define product's market fit, for a metric to measure it, and then for a methodology to systematically increase it. And so I searched high and low, I read everything I could find, I spoke with all the experts, and I came across this guy, Sean Ellis. Now, he ran growth in the early days at Dropbox, LogMeIn, Eventsprite. He actually coined the term growth hacker. Sean found a leading indicator of product market fit, and one that is benchmarked and predictive. You just ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product and measure the percent who answer very disappointed? After benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found the companies that struggle to grow always get less than 40% very disappointed, and the companies that grow most easily almost always get more than 40%. In other words, if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, you have initial product market fit. And the thing about this metric is that it's more objective than a feeling. It predicts success way better than net promoter score. And it's not only the best way to measure product market fit, like I said, we used it to develop our very own product market fit engine. And with that engine, we now can systematically increase product market fit, and it even automatically generates our roadmap for us. And that roadmap is guaranteed to make the metric go up. I love it. It's so awesome. And so now I'm sure uh, a listener like myself hears this and they're like, wow, for the first time, I have this awareness around a methodology and a metric, like a true metric that can give me a leading indicator on if I have product market fit and if my company is going to grow, right? Now, I think that the obvious next question is, what do I do? Do I simply just ask this question? Who do I ask this question to? How often do I ask the question? What is kind of the step-by-step -step playbook for actually embedding this way of measurement around product market fit into your business on an ongoing basis? I'll use Superhuman as a running example, and the process is about five steps. Step one is survey. Step two is segment. Step three is analyze. Step four is implement, and step five is track. So let's just go through these steps, each one in turn, and starting with, of course, step one, survey. In this step, you email four questions to every user. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product? And give people three possibilities, a very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed. What type of people do you think would most benefit from the product? That's a free-form answer. What is the main benefit you receive from the product? Also free-form. And how can we improve the product for you? Also free-form. Now, you should send these questions when users have experienced the core of your product. At Superhuman, we wait until they've had about three weeks. They've sent a certain number of emails. If this was Uber, it would be after you've taken your first ride. If it was Airbnb, it would be after you've uh, done your first stay. Then analyze the results to this question. 
For Superhuman, in the summer of 2017, we ended up with 22% very disappointed, 52% somewhat disappointed, and 26% not disappointed. So the core number there is 22. We very clearly did not have product market fit. Now that may seem sad, but I could at least explain our situation to the team. And most excitingly, I had a plan to increase our product market fit score. So that brings us to step two of the engine, but I'll, I'll pause there in case you have any thoughts on step one. Yeah, there's two things that come to mind. One thing that comes up for me is I'm literally trying to envision and visualize the emotions that you felt at the time when you first ran this in 2017 and you saw 22% uh, classifying themselves as very disappointed because I'm almost imagining myself what I would feel and I'd almost feel like this drop in my stomach. But also to your point, it's it's actually, it's so encouraging and helpful in the sense of like, you actually have a benchmark now. There's actually something you can do. I, I'm curious, was that your feeling at the time? It was, and it's a complicated set of feelings. 22% as a starting point, as we'll see, is actually not that bad. 22 or 20% plus, I would say, tweak your market, tweak your product. You can iterate your way there. It's when you're sort of in the 10 to 15% range that I start to think, well, you know, maybe you should just have an entirely different market or an entirely different product. So it was a feeling of cautious optimism and yep. one where I, mean, I think you're an entrepreneur, almost everyone listening to this is or will be an entrepreneur. We've all had that feeling of something is there and it's kind of bubbling along under the surface and I knew it was there. So it was kind of a cautious, excited optimism. Absolutely. One other question before we move on to step two is can you just share a little bit more context on why these four questions? The first question is obvious, right? Like that is the question that gives you the score that you're going to work off of. But why are questions two through four in the survey important questions to ask? Because they power the rest of the product market fit engine. And as we'll see, we should probably just jump into the steps. The answers Perfect. to these questions will create this roadmap that increases the product market fit score. So for example, let's take step two segment. Now we want to understand who are the people who really love our product. And for this, I like to use the concept of the high expectation customer, which is a concept that I found from Julie Supan. Now Julie led early marketing at Dropbox, Airbnb, and many other great companies. The HXC is the most discerning person in your demographic. They will enjoy your product for its greatest benefit and will spread the word. Most importantly, others want to be like them because they seem clever, judicious, and insightful. For example, the Dropbox HXC wants to simplify their life. They're very trusting, they're technically savvy, they're looking to save time, and at the end of the day, they want to know that somebody has their back when it comes to their life's work. I'm an example of the Dropbox HXC, and I'm sure many of our audience are also. The Airbnb HXC does not simply want to visit new places, they want to belong. For example, they want to experience Paris as if they really live there. And Airbnb's early success came from focusing on these influencers and these tastemakers. So the question is, how do you create your own HXC? Take the users who would be very disappointed without your product and analyze their answers to question number two. Who do you think this product is best for? Now, this turns out to be a very powerful question as happy users will almost always describe themselves 
but using the words that matter most to them. You can then turn these words into a rich and detailed explanation of your own HXE. So let's take a look at the superhuman example. What is the superhuman HXC? We call her Nicole. She is a hardworking professional who deals with many people. She may be an executive, a founder, an investor, or a manager. She works long hours, often into the weekend. She considers herself very busy and wishes she had more time. Now she does feel productive and she is self-aware to realize that she could be better and she'll occasionally investigate ways to improve. She obviously spends much of her work day in her inbox. On a typical day, she'll read hundreds of emails. She might send 50 on a busy day. She might send as much as 80 or 100. And most importantly, she considers it part of her job to be responsive. And she prides herself on being so because she knows that if she's unresponsive, she could block her team, she could damage her reputation, or she could miss opportunities. She aims to get to inbox zero, but she gets there at most two or three times a week. And very occasionally, perhaps once a year, she'll declare email bankruptcy and just start again. Now, generally, she has a growth mindset. She's open-minded about new products and keeps up to date with technology. However, she may have a fixed mindset about email specifically. While she's open to new software, she is skeptical that one could make her faster. So you're going to take all of the answers to question number two and turn that into a two or three paragraph description must much like the one I just described. You then use your high expectation customer to narrow the market. Now the core insight here is, uh, before I describe how to do that, most founders because we're builders, we obsess over the product itself. Well, you know, the product isn't resonating quite as much as it could or should, so let's keep tweaking the product. It turns out to be way faster to tweak the market because you can leave the product the same. So here is how you do that. You go back to the survey, you take each response, and you assign a persona to each one. Take the users who most love your product, these would be the ones who'd be very disappointed without it, and use them to narrow the market. So in Superhuman, we can take a simplified example. Let's say that we focus on founders, managers, executives, and people who work in business development. And at the time, we chose to deliberately ignore sales, success, engineering, and data science. We literally just discard those results from the survey. Well, then what happens to your product market fit score? Just by segmenting, in our case, our product market fit score jumped by 10% from 22% to 32%. So we're not quite at 40% yet, but we made significant progress and that whole segmenting step took just two minutes, which then brings us to step three of the engine, which is to analyze. So one just clarifying question as I go through this process is when you talk about Nicole as your HXC and you use these paragraphs to describe her, is that, are you using those two paragraphs to then ask yourself, what are the personas that most exemplify this uh, HXC? And is it that founder, manager, uh, executive, and business development? Your belief is those. it's these classifications of personas that are most similar to the person that Nicole is describing, or are these separate ideas? They are ideas that are sort of tied up in a loop. So take your survey results, focus on the ones where people said, I'd be very disappointed without your product. Look at their answers to question number two, who do you think this is best for? Use the insight that happy users will almost always describe themselves. Use those words to come up with the HXC. 
go back to the list of the entire survey results, you now have your HXC. Discard all those folks who, uh, who are somewhat disappointed and who are not disappointed, who the HXC doesn't describe. You'll have some HXCs in there who may be yep. um, somewhat disappointed or not disappointed, and you'll now have a subset of your survey results. Then recalculate your very disappointed score, and it will be significantly higher than where you started. In our case, we jumped from 22% to 32%. And what this is telling you is that if you focus your positioning, your pricing, your marketing, and your product development solely on the highest expectation customer, you're so much closer to product market fit. Absolutely. Okay, makes sense to me. Let's move on to the next step. Okay, so step three is analyze. And here, we want to understand two things. Number one, why do people love our product? And number two, what holds people back from loving our product? To understand why people love our product, we need to go back to the survey. And we focus only on users who would be very disappointed without our product again. We then analyze their results to question number three, which is what is the main benefit you receive from our product? Here are some examples. This is usually a one-line answer. So some examples would be processing email is much faster. I get to my inbox in half the time. The app is crazy fast. Keyboard shortcuts make me an actual superhuman. So much faster than Gmail. More efficient with my time. Work through email more quickly. Speed, aesthetics, do everything from the keyboard. Speed and a great set of keyboard shortcuts. That's like nine different examples. Now you're going to have hopefully hundreds. I like to create a big word cloud and it becomes clear as day. In our case, people love superhuman for its speed, focus, time savings, and keyboard shortcuts. We then want to grow the size of this very disappointed segment. Now first, and as painful as it is, we have to ignore the not disappointed segment. They, this might be difficult because they are very loud, but they are so far from loving the products that they are essentially a lost cause. And it's also very important because they will tend to ask for all kinds of distracting things. So as counterintuitive as it may feel, do not act on the feedback of the not disappointed segment. That leaves just the somewhat disappointed segment. Maybe we can help them fall in love with the product. And we most certainly can. But again, and I cannot stress this enough, do not act directly on their feedback. Because many of them, maybe even most of them, will remain somewhat disappointed no matter what you do and so their requests are just distracting. So how do you decide who to listen to? Here's the magic. Use the main benefit of the very disappointed users to segment the somewhat disappointed users. In our case, the main benefit is speed. So first of all, we have the somewhat disappointed users for whom speed was not the main benefit. I strongly advise that you ignore these people we do too, because the main benefit does not resonate with them. Even if you built everything they wanted, they are unlikely to fall in love with your product because the main benefit of your product does not resonate with them. Second, in our case, the somewhat disappointed users for whom speed was the main benefit. We pay very special attention to those because the main benefit does resonate, but something, and I would wager probably something very small, holds them back. 
So how do we figure out what? We analyze their responses to the fourth and final question, how can we improve our product for you? And as before, I like to create a word cloud for Superhuman in 2017, the main thing holding back our users was simple. It was the lack of a mobile app, which we have, of course, since addressed. And then it got less obvious and more interesting, things like integrations, attachment handling, calendaring, better search, read receipts, and so on into the long tail. Now, to increase your product's market fit score, all you have to do is build these things. That would convert these users who are only somewhat disappointed and for whom the main benefit resonates into fanatics who would be very disappointed without the product, people who love the product. So that was quite a lot. Let me do a, a really quick recap here. We want to figure out how to grow the size of the very disappointed segment. We can't really do that with the not disappointed segment. They're too far gone. We can do it with some of the somewhat disappointed segment, but we have to figure out which subset. To figure out which subset, we use the main benefits to uh, turn the somewhat disappointed segment into two parts. We then discard the part for whom the main benefit doesn't resonate. We then take only the part for whom the main benefit does resonate, and we analyze their answers to the question, how can we improve the product for you? That then becomes the list of things which if you build, you start to increase the product's market fit score. Now, of course, it's not quite as simple as that, and we can get into the nuance in step four, implement. Yeah, I think a few things that resonate with me just up to this point is how important it is, no matter how uncomfortable, to intentionally ignore the customers that, like you said, are going to be loud. They're going to have feedback. They're going to complain about things, but they are not the customer that you need to be obsessed with if you truly want to get your product market fit score to 40%. And I think the other just amazing thing about this whole process is that it's the first time that a true process exists for not just understanding where your business is today, but actually informing, and we'll talk about this in a second, informing what are kind of like the, the prioritized North Star or like quarterly goals for your business or for your development team based on exactly what your users have said, the users that you do want to get into the very disappointed category. And so... I'll let you take it from there, but my, my assumption is that the next step is really thinking about how their recommendations, the people who you want to focus on, how their recommendations are now informing what you build next. Exactly. And this is where you have to be extra careful. We now understand, this is step four, implement. We now understand why users love our product, and we understand what holds users back. To increase our product's market fit score, we should spend about half our time doubling down on what users love. In the superhuman case, that's even more speed, even more shortcuts, even more efficiency, even more time saved, even more aesthetics. However, just as importantly, we should spend half our time systematically addressing what holds users back. In our case, it was things like calendar and attachments and read receipts and all of that stuff. If we only double down on what users love, and this is what vision-driven teams tend to do, we would not increase the product's market fit score because you're only uh, addressing feedback from the people who already love you. If we only address the objections from the somewhat disappointed users, this is what data-driven teams tend to do, then a competitor would eventually overtake you because they'll do the magic thing eventually better than you do the magic thing. 
which means you have to balance continuously building more magic, that's the stuff the very disappointed users love, with systematically addressing the improvements needed for the somewhat disappointed users, call that objection handling, in order to simultaneously grow your market and maintain your magic. Now this is your new roadmap, and it actually automatically writes itself. We go into every planning cycle, aiming to spend roughly half our time doubling down on what users love, and half our time systematically addressing what holds users back. And if you, I realize this is a lot of information, it's very, no, <laughs> very, it's very awesome. technical, but if you just take a moment to, to sort of lean back and think about that, it actually almost guarantees that the product's market fit score goes up over time. Yeah, and can you just share a few examples of either the things that your very disappointed users loved or, and wanted more of, or the things that were holding people back from being very disappointed, and like what were actual things on your product roadmap at the time that were added to the roadmap as a function of respecting kind of the 50% and the 50%? Yeah, great question. So some actual examples of what we did to double down on user love would be even more keyboard shortcuts for things that other applications simply don't have keyboard shortcuts for. We have this concept in Superhuman of a focus. It's a purple bar or a purple highlight in almost every single other application. If you drive it quickly, if you drive Gmail or Outlook quickly, well, first of all, you can't do that via the keyboard. And second of all, you'll end up losing focus, meaning your keyboard won't be anywhere and you'll have to click something again, which dramatically slows you down. So we invested tremendously at Superhuman in making sure you can never lose focus and the thing always responds instantly. Another example of that would be our optimistic UI. So many of the applications that we use uh, to use an engineering phrase, they block on the network, meaning they stop and they wait for the internet or the server to do the thing. I, I think we've all had the experience, uh, well, I, I hope people haven't had this experience because it's incredibly frustrating, but using <laughs> Gmail sort of on a plane, you know, when you're landing slash taking off and you hit send and it's sending and it's sending and 15 seconds later, it's still sending and the whole thing is locked up and <laughs> you just can't work anymore. Like your tab is broken and yeah. then you hit reload and then you're like, God damn it, why did I do that? Because now I've lost my whole tab and, and the whole thing is broken, right? That's an example of blocking on the network. And Superhuman is just designed to never do that. It's an optimistic user interface. It has, we, we actually spent 18 months building an offline first architecture which works not just when you're offline, but also when you're in low connectivity so that you can always move really fast, no matter whether you're in an office, in the back of an Uber, in a plane, whatever it is you're doing. So these are the kinds of things that we built to double down on what users already loved. Help users who are already experiencing speed, experiencing efficiency, loving shortcuts, loving the design. Uh, I didn't really talk about design, but our aesthetic is a big deal. Build more of that. And then some actual things that the somewhat disappointed users for whom the main benefit was speed were asking for were like, well, <laughs> this was 2017, they were like, you really need an iPhone app. And we were like, yes, we know. We're building that right now. <laughs> um, they said, you really need calendaring. I mean, this was at a time when we didn't have any calendaring whatsoever. You couldn't RSVP to calendar invites. We didn't have see your day down the right-hand side of your email. You couldn't create calendar events. We didn't have see your week. We did, I mean, we have so much today that we just didn't have. Totally. They wanted the ability to 
uh, do read statuses to see when people were opening their emails, uh, how, when, and where. They wanted the ability to schedule emails. They wanted those scheduled emails to not send if, in fact, the other person replied in the interim. They wanted the ability to preview files, uh, attachments when they were sent. Like you know, this is, you may say, well, these sound all like reasonable, basic things, and they are. But the challenge for a startup, especially if you're going into a application area where the surface area is as large as email, is one of the largest applications that exists, is you can't build all of these things at the same time. And so at the beginning, you just have to kind of use your gut sense, or maybe you can inform it with data and, and pick a handful of things. And as you go forwards, you somehow need to maintain continuously building the stuff that people love so that you have the edge in the marketplace with continuously building these bread and butter objection overcoming things so that you can widen the market. Yeah, I think what's beautiful about this process is obviously the kind of like the output of this process is a product market fit score, which can be a leading indicator for how your business is and will grow. But really the beauty of this is it's a, pro, it's a proactive measure for the right inputs so that you can be relentlessly prioritizing the right things in your business. Like to me, actually like this whole process is an exercise in prioritizing the right thing, which at the end of the day is the most important thing for any startup, especially in the early days when time is your most finite resource. And you talk about some of these examples of things in 2017 that users uh, had asked for that you added to your roadmap, whether it was a mobile app or integrations or calendaring features. And like you said, like these are say reasonable things to ask for, but what isn't included in this article are probably 500 other features that also would seem reasonable to someone, but they weren't reasonable in the sense of prioritizing the users that you actually care about. Exactly. And it's not possible to build all those things, so you need some way to cut down and prioritize that list. The other thing, to bring us full circle for a moment, that this is useful for is as a leadership tool and as a management tool. I mean, if you remember, at the very start, I knew that we didn't have products market fit. But as a CEO or as a founder, I mean, you can't just say that. I mean, you can say it, but you're not leading particularly well. You need to say it and also have a plan. And what this engine gives you is a fully formed plan. I love it. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And I believe there's one last step in the process, so I'd love to finish with that. So you've gone through the survey, you've segmented, uh, you've gotten responses from the users that matter about what they want, what's holding them back, or what more magic they want. That's informed your product roadmap. What's the, the final step in basically understanding if things are working? The fifth and final step is ongoing tracking. As I've said, the framework will work, but of course there are no silver bullets. So as you double down on what users love, and as you address what holds users back, you should constantly survey new users. 
and I recommend tracking your product market fit score every week, month, and quarter. And to give you an idea of how fast this can work, in the summer of 2017, after the resegmentation, our product market fit score was 33%. A quarter after that, it was 47%. A quarter after that, it was 56%. And a quarter after that, so a year later, it was 58%. So a year after starting this engine, 58% of our users would have been very disappointed without Superhuman. So the product market fit engine Incredible. It really does work. It gives you this way to define product market fit. It gives you a metric to measure product market fit, and it gives you a methodology to increase product market fit. And it can even create this roadmap for you that will basically make this number go up and you can also use to rally your team. It's incredible. Yeah, I think it's it's just such a, an amazing process. And you know, it's why I was so excited to have you on the podcast because it's something that I think every entrepreneur, no matter the stage of business you're at, should at least know about to then make the intentional decision of if this works for them or does not. Before we go, and, and of course, I'm going to share um, the articles around this. There's kind of two main articles, the one on first round review, and then there's also the one on Coda that kind of goes into more depth about the product market fit engine. I'm going to include those in the show notes. But before we hop, I'd love to just hear, are there any kind of major takeaways or lessons that you've had from developing this process over the last, I mean, it's crazy. Now it's been, you know, six years since you first wrote the article. I've been surprised at how evergreen the concept has been. It still works today. We still use it today. It remains important over time. I think it was Andrew Chen who coined the term the law of shitty metrics, which by which he means even a metric as great at 58% will inevitably come down over time, and this will happen to all of your metrics. And so what that means is, and this is normal, we just have to keep working at it. As we're constantly expanding our audience, we're constantly evolving the product. Audience may remember how earlier in our uh, recording today we said, well, what if we disregard sales, success, engineering, and data science? Today, sales and success are two of our core constituencies. In fact, we have a whole product line, Superhuman for Sales, which we also sell to customer success folk, that has a Salesforce integration, that has a HubSpot integration, that has a feed of recent activity and recent opens. We're building all kinds of tracking and integrations to make those people more successful people that we decided five or six years ago simply weren't our target market. And so the product market fit score, because we we expand what we consider to be our market, inevitably comes down and then you need to build more product and bring it back up. So I think the most important lesson is that this isn't a one-time fix. This is an ongoing process. This is really the way that you run products or you run the company. It's company strategy. I love it. Raul, this has been such an awesome conversation. Um, and while I've read this article probably a dozen times now, and it's something that I share with the CEOs of any business that I've launched, I, somehow there was just more insights that I gleaned through you talking through this with me. So I'm incredibly appreciative for you joining the podcast, and I know our listeners are going to get a ton out of it. So appreciate you being on. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Founders Journal. As always, thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next episode.
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.